Good afternoon. Thank you all for taking time out of this beautiful day to join us inside for our Capitol Hill briefing uh, titled The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. My name is Jeff Vanderslice, and I am a Director of Government and External Affairs at the Cato Institute, a public policy research organization here in DC dedicated to the principles of limited government, uh, individual liberty, free markets, and peace. Today's discussion is named after a recently published book by the same title as today's event, which is available to you on the registration table uh, as you came in right outside these doors. Uh, for those of you who did not receive a copy on uh, your way in, please feel free to grab one on your way out. And of course, if we uh, run out or you otherwise uh, decide that you would like a copy later, uh, feel free to contact us. We'd be happy to drop one by your office. Uh, with us to uh, today to discuss this book are two of Cato's scholars, Michael Tanner, the author of today's book, uh, and Emily Eakins, uh, Cato's director of polling, who will discuss her ongoing research on Americans' attitudes toward welfare policy, poverty, and work. Tanner is a senior fellow at the Institute, where he heads research into a variety of domestic policies with an emphasis on social welfare, healthcare, and retirement. He has written numerous books, including Going for Broke, Deficits, Debt, and the Entitlement Crisis, Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It, and The Poverty of Welfare, Helping Others in Civil Society. His writings have appeared in nearly every major American newspaper, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. He has been named by the Congressional Quarterly as one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. Emily Eakins is a research fellow and director of polling at the Cato Institute, where she focuses on public opinion, American politics, political psychology, and social movements. Uh, she has authored several in-depth survey reports, including the state of free speech and tolerance in America, policing in America, and, five time, uh, and the five types of Trump voters. Her research has appeared in the Washington Post, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Los Angeles Times, and other publications. She earned her PhD in political science from UCLA. And with that, I'll turn things over to Michael. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate your coming out. It really is much too nice a day to be in here listening to me, so I really appreciate the, the suffering that's going to go with this. Uh, as we talk about a subject that I think is not talked about enough in Washington, and that is poverty and how we should get people out of poverty. You know, we spend a great deal of money, actually, in this country fighting poverty, maybe not as much as some people like, maybe more than others people would like, but it's quite a bit. Uh, if you look at all federally means-tested programs or programs that say uh, in the definition of them, this is an anti-poverty program, uh, we have about 100 such anti-poverty programs at the federal level, 70-some-of-odd uh, of which provide benefits directly to individuals. The others provide benefits to low-income communities. And these spend about $700 billion at the federal level every year uh, on these programs, and another $300 billion or so at the state, local levels. So we're spending nearly a trillion dollars uh, every year fighting poverty. And in fairness, these programs have succeeded at some level. They do reduce the poverty rate. The poverty rate is lower today because of these programs than it would be in the absence uh, of these programs, or at least you can't prove the counterfactual, but well, we do know that they do reduce poverty rates. But the question is whether or not simply reducing the poverty rate or making poverty less miserable 
should be the goal, the ultimate goal of our anti-poverty policy. Uh, you know, because you can take a, go to a community like Sandtown up in Baltimore uh, where Freddie Gray was killed, or uh, East Fresno, California, or Owsley, Kentucky, the poorest community in America, and ask, you know, are these thriving communities? Are the people in these communities flourishing? And that ultimately should be the goal of public policy, is, is human flourishing, thriving human beings. They're able to become all that they can be. You know, if you look at sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, we do a reasonable level at the very bottom, the base of that pyramid, uh, of making sure that people have enough food and shelter and clothing and so on. The sort of destitution that existed even in the 1960s when large numbers of the poor didn't have running water or electricity, where you know, uh, real hunger in America was, was prevalent. Uh, we do a reasonable job at dealing with those needs. But we don't do very good at getting people to rise up to the top of that pyramid where they are the masters of their own fate, where they are self-sufficient, where they are in charge of their own lives and able to control their own destinies and to become all that their individual talents will let them be. So when I started looking at poverty for this book, The Inclusive Economy, I said, let's go back to the beginning and strip it down. Let's get away from the sort of sterile debate that we have in Washington right now, which is you know, we spend $98 billion on food stamps, and Democrats say, oh, no, no, we need to make that 99. And Republicans say, oh, no, no, let's cut it back to 97. And we assume that one of those changes is going to make a huge difference uh, in people's lives. I said, let's strip it right down to the beginning. So the first thing I wanted to do was look at why people are actually poor. And what I found was there are two competing theories on poverty, if you will, in, in this country. And both politically and academically, you get a lot of butting of heads between these two theories. Uh, on one side is a theory that says that poverty is the result of individual choices, individual decisions by the poor themselves. That there's a culture of poverty out there and that that leads the poor to make a series of poor decisions in their lives and those decisions are what actually traps people in poverty. And they looked at what something was called the success sequence. And this, there is a strong correlation to suggest that this, there's accuracy in this, that if people will perform certain functions, that if they will graduate high school, for example, and then get a job, and then have children only after they're married, they are unlikely to end up in poverty. And if you look at the numbers of this, you find that very few people who do those things are actually poor. Uh, fewer than 3%, actually, of people who do all three of those steps actually end up in poverty. Now there's correlation, causation questions, but you certainly can say that those choices matter in people's lives. On the other side of this, you find that people on, on the, the liberal side of the spectrum say, okay, that's good as far as it goes, but you can't ignore the fact that we have endemic racism in our society, that gender-based discrimination is still prevalent, and the very uh, creative destruction of capitalism that's celebrated by conservatives and people like me uh, leads to economic dislocation that can leave some people behind and some people out of the equation, and that these things can also cause poverty. I mean, you can't ignore the fact, for example, that the legacy of slavery alone is that African Americans have been deprived of seven to ten trillion dollars in capital in the African American community. Uh, those sorts of things can't simply be left behind in the equation. So who's right? I think there's actually truth to both sides of this equation. I don't think you could strip the poor of agency and pretend that they are nothing more than chaff blown by the winds of fate, that nothing they do matters, 
that they are entirely at the mercy of outside forces and that their choices have no consequence. I think that's a very demeaning way to look at the poor. But I also think you have to recognize that we all make our choices within certain constraints. And the simple fact is that if you uh, are a poor minority child in the inner city, let's say, and you're growing up in an area that has very few jobs, where the school system is lousy, where the police hassle you every time you set foot outside your door, you're going to end up making very different set of choices and decisions than if you're a rich white kid growing up in Chevy Chase. And we need to understand that it is a combination both of the individual choices people make and the context in which society sets those decisions that ultimately lead to poverty. So looking at all of this, I said, okay, there's some truth on this side, there's some truth on that side, but there's a third villain, if you will, in this equation that we need to look at. And that is the government itself, and where government policies get in the way of people actually rising out of poverty. How often the government is actually messing up things on both sides of this equation, either setting incentives that make for the wrong individual choices, or it has actually enforced the societal discrimination that actually leads people to, un to make the choices they do. So I identified in this book, I identified basically five areas where I think that we should be looking to reform policy in order to help people get out of poverty. The first of these is criminal justice and the need for criminal justice reform. We know that our criminal justice system is biased against poor people and people of color at every step of the way. From our overcriminalization of virtually everything in America, and I'm talking about the war on drugs, the war on sex work. Uh, look, let us not forget that Eric Garner up in New York was killed for the crime of selling an untaxed cigarette. We look at, need to look at the overcriminalization of society, but then we also need to look at the way the police interact with people on the street. We need to look at the way we deal with arrests. We know, for example, that if you are a minority person or live in the inner city, uh, that you are going to be treated, arrested more likely for drug use uh, than if you are white. And yet blacks and whites use drugs at approximately the same rates. Uh, once you're arrested, we know you're going to be sentenced more harmly, har harshly if you're a person of color. We need to look at the way people are treated in prison. And we need to look at the problem that stems from having a criminal record when you get out of prison. Uh, the fact is, if you commit a crime, you make a mistake, you do something, you get a felony conviction when you're 20 years old. When you're 40 years old, you're still going to have, be carrying around that criminal record. It's going to prevent you from getting a job because you have to check that little box that says you have a felony conviction when you apply for work. But it can also prevent you from getting housing because landlords can ask about whether you have a criminal record. It can prevent you from getting scholarship aid, financial aid to go to school. Uh, it's a whole, you can, it can prevent you from getting a license to perform uh, various occupations. You know, in Ohio, they actually have a prison training program to teach people in prison to become barbers. But it's illegal to get a barber's license if you have a felony conviction in the state of Ohio. <laughs> Seems sort of a, you know, pointless exercise. Uh, so we need to look at all of these things. And, you know, I'll just show you just how this inter interacts. One of the things that uh, conservatives worry a great deal about is women who have children outside of marriage. And they point to a host of problems that stems from high out-of-marriage birth rates. Well, I, I, you know, they say, well, you go to the inner city, you see, you know, 67, 68% of women having children outside of marriage. And I say, exactly who are these women supposed to marry? 
It's not like you have this giant pool of inner city computer programmers that are waiting around for them. As William Julius Wilson from Harvard has pointed out, our criminal justice system has stripped a million and a half young black men out of the marriage pool because they're tied up in the criminal justice system, which makes it difficult for them to find a job that's going to allow them to support a family, to get the housing and education and all the things that I've talked about. Unless you reform criminal justice, you're not going to be able to deal with things like the high out-of-marriage birth rate. So that's number one. We need to deal with the criminal justice reform system. And scholars at Vanderbilt University suggest that that reform alone could reduce poverty rates by as much as 20%, that single reform. Second, we need to look at the education system. We know that education is one of the best routes out of poverty. And we know that if you drop out of school, you're about five times more likely to be poor than if you go on and finish high school or go on to college. And yet we have a school system today that all too often fails people of color and low-income people. We have a school system that today that all too often exists for the benefit of the teachers' unions and the administrators and not for the parents and the children themselves. That there's very little innovation, very little competition within our school system, very little improvement. And it's not just a function of money. We know that school systems like Baltimore or Washington, D.C. or Chicago or L.A. actually spend more per pupil than school systems almost anywhere in the country and yet get poor results. We need to look at our education system in ways that we can bring more innovation, more competition, and more control ultimately by parents and, and operating for their children's sake than for the system itself. The system is not the goal. Ultimately, educating children is the goal. Third, and this one actually surprised me a little bit as much as I dug into it, just how important it is, but that is we need to make reforms to housing and bring down the cost of housing for low-income people. You know, um, housing takes up a disproportionate amount of poor people's income. About 40% on average of a poor person's income goes to pay the rent. And that's a huge amount when you have other needs as well. But at the same time, if you have high rents, unaffordable rents, it ghettoizes the poor, locks them into low-income communities. They can't move to an area that has more jobs or that has uh, better schools or that has a lower crime rate. They're trapped in their area with all the social dysfunction that goes on in those areas. And yet, it's often government policy that drives up rents beyond the ability of poor people to afford. Specifically, I want to look at things like land use and zoning laws. Zoning alone can add as much as 50% to the cost of housing in communities like Manhattan and San Francisco. Nationwide, it can add 25 to 30% or more to the cost of rent. You know, and often these zoning laws... First of all, we should note that the most zoning laws were their history is explicitly racial. Uh, the first zoning law in the nation was actually in L.A. I believe the second zoning law was in Baltimore, and that zoning law actually prohibited, as part of the zoning ordinances, prohibited you from selling or renting to any family that was not of the majority race on your block. Uh, Richmond copied that law within, uh, Richmond, Virginia copied that law within a couple of years. It then moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and it spread throughout the country. And it still has the same segregatory effect today of, of keeping basically people of color and low-income people out of upper-income communities or middle-class communities. And it's still what it's used for today primarily 
is to prevent low-income housing and, uh, uh, and better communities. We need to be looking at zoning laws, land use laws, and how they're used basically to bar poor people from uh, middle-class communities. Fourth, we need to look at savings. We need to be looking at whether or not we encourage people to save. I mean, this should be common sense that you don't get out of poverty by spending. You get out of poverty by saving money. And yet on both sides of the equation, we discourage savings in this country. You know, for one thing, we make it hard for the poor simply to open a bank account. We're so paranoid about the war on drugs and the war on terror that we set up all sorts of identification requirements to simply open a savings account. And we worry a lot, and you hear a lot of debate about uh, ID laws for voting and so on, but we often neglect the fact that poor people who, not only do they lack ID for voting, they lack the proper identification to open a bank account. About 20% of poor people don't have the proper ID to be able to open a bank account. And if you can't get a bank account, it means when you have to check a cash a check or you can't borrow money or whatever, you're driven to these alternatives that often have very high rates. But you also have to walk around with wads of money in your pocket. And think of the problems that causes. You're more likely to be robbed. The police catch you with $500 in your pocket. They think you must be a drug courier, and they'll seize the money. All those problems caused by savings on that end. On the other end of it, our welfare programs are uniquely designed to discourage savings and encourage consumption. Basically, if you get a welfare check and you spend every penny of it, hey, that's fine with us. Put some of that money in a 529 account for your kids to go to school someday, and we'll take away your check. With many welfare programs, if you have a car so that you can go try to get a job to get off of welfare, we'll take away your check. We need to be looking at our asset programs. Obviously, you need some sort of asset testing. We don't want you know, last year's lottery winner to be on welfare. But we need to be looking at the asset tests to see if they actually act to discourage people from making their lives better which should, in getting off of welfare, which ultimately should be the goal. And lastly, there's something which I call inclusive economic growth, and it's basically the basis for the book, The Inclusive Economy. We know that nothing gets people off of poverty more so than economic growth. A growing economy lifts people out of poverty better than any government program ultimately can in the end. I mean, if you just simply look at history, you can go back in history and you find that for most of man's history, man was desperately, miserably poor. And they were ruled over by a little elite that was slightly less desperately, miserably poor. But about 300 years ago, something happened and the world's wealth increased and the number of poor people declined substantially. And it's been going on since then. You know, if you took back 100 years ago, the wealthy lived lifestyles that in many cases aren't as good as many poor people live today. I mean, the, the, you know, the Carnegie's had a great big house that they couldn't heat. Uh, things like that. Uh, well, that thing that happened about 300 years ago was modern free market capitalism. And we need to encourage that today. And we know what encourages that, low taxes, low regulations, things like that. But we should also recognize that economic growth is only going to lift people out of poverty if everybody can participate. If we block poor people from being part of that growing economy, they're not going to see the benefits of that growing economy. And that means we need to look at things that get in the way of poor people becoming part of the economy, part of economic growth. Things like, for example, occupational licensing. You know, we, about 25 to 30 percent of all jobs in America today require you to get the government's permission to practice your profession. 
And I'm not talking about being a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. I'm talking about being a cosmetologist, a beautician, or braiding hair, or being a florist, or a funeral attendant. I mean, all these things require you to get a license from the state. And in many cases, it's very arduous and very expensive to get that license. I'll give you one example. In Louisiana, if you want to be a florist, you're a single mom and you're trying to get off of welfare and you think you can get a job as a florist, you're pretty good at it, you've done some flower arranging, your friends have told you you're good. In order to get that, you have to take this course that's going to be months long. You're going to have to find a babysitter every night in order to be able to go take the course. And you're going to have to pay for the course and the books for it. And then you're going to have to take a test at the end of this course. That test is only given twice a year and only in Monroe, Louisiana. So you're going to have to find transportation to Monroe and a, hospital, and a hotel to stay overnight and someone to look after your kids and take this test to become a florist. Because God forbid we get a bad floral display. I mean, can you imagine something worse? Look, we need to be looking at whether or not licensing is reciprocal or whether or not it's necessary, whether or not you're blocked from it simply because you have a criminal record in your past. We need to be looking at all of these things. At the same time, you need to look at occupational zoning. Can you start a small business in your kitchen? Can she take that flower, you know, if she gets that florist degree, can she come back and then start arranging flowers in her kitchen? Or is she blocked because the zoning laws say you can't work in your, in your house? We need to look at barriers to affordable child care uh, that get in the way. Licensing requirements there or education requirements that simply make child care so expensive. The, you know, here in Washington, D.C., they're working on a law that was going to make, you have to get a bachelor's degree to be a child care worker. You don't have to have a bachelor's degree to be a parent. <laughs> All that's going to do is make child care more expensive so that poor people can't afford to get child care so they can't afford to get a job. When you look at the minimum wage laws and other laws that prevent people from getting that first job and getting in on a chance to become employed or to start a business, or to do things that are going to get them out of poverty. Look, I don't pretend that this book will provide utopia and it's going to solve every problem of poverty in America. But I do think it provides an agenda that we should all be able to agree on. These are low-hanging fruit. These are things that Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, libertarians should all be able to buy into. And I think you know, as you're going to hear some polling results soon, I think the American public will buy into them. We should, as policy influencers, or simply as good and decent people, care about the people who are in poverty. And we should want them to rise as far as they can. I'm hoping that I provided an agenda that will do that. Thank you all very much. I look forward to some questions later on. Thank you, Michael. Now we'll hear from Emily. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you this afternoon and be able to present to you brand new results from the Cato 2019 Welfare, Work, and Wealth Survey. Um, so I conducted this survey independent of Michael. I read his book, um, and I was interested in taking a look at what Americans thought about some of the kind of the underlying ideas as well as the reforms, and I'll be presenting the results to you today. Um, so this is a nationally representative survey of American adults. We surveyed 2,000 people. This was conducted just this last month by the reputable survey firm YouGov. They do a lot of the surveys for The Economist and The New York Times. 
So first, we took a look at attitudes towards the origins of wealth and poverty. What makes a person wealthy? What makes a person poor? What are the causes of these things? So among all Americans, we asked people to give their top three reasons. For wealth, people said hard work and grit, ambition, and family connections. What are the causes of poverty? People said poor life choices, drugs and alcohol, and the lack of jobs. What you'll notice here is that Americans tend to place more emphasis on factors that are just more or less within the purview of an individual person and their decisions, but that they also factor in external forces that are not within an individual person's decision um, and are external to them. There were some very interesting differences, though, by ideology between liberals and conservatives, and I wanted to highlight those and discuss what that means for when we talk about welfare policy in general. So among liberals, what are the top three reasons, according to liberals, that people become wealthy? The three things they gave were family connections, inheritance, and getting lucky. What do these three things have in common? They're all external forces that happen to a person. Conservatives, on the other hand, the top three reasons, hard work and grit, ambition, and delayed gratification. What do these three things have in common? They emphasize factors that are within, to more or less, within the individual's purview of control, within their agency, their free will. What about the causes of poverty? Consistent with liberals' views about the causes of wealth, they focus on the reasons for poverty are lack of educational opportunities, discrimination such as racism and sexism, and an unfair economic system. So again, external forces that just happen upon a person. And conservatives' top three uh, reasons for poverty were poor life choices, the breakdown of families, drugs and alcohol, and a lack of work ethic. So consistent with what uh, conservatives said about the causes of wealth, similarly for poverty, they focus on individual level decisions. And I think these differences in assumptions really underlie almost every debate you see going on right now when it comes to social welfare policy and, and economic policy in general, is that liberals tend to emphasize the external forces that happen and conservatives uh, that happen to a person and conservatives emphasize the individual level decisions, the things within the control of a person. Now, as Mike mentioned, the truth is it's both, right, to some degree or another. The question is, what do you choose to emphasize? Um, but this debate often makes it difficult for us to reach agreement when it comes to social welfare policy and how to fight poverty. What do Americans think about work? My mom used to always say this to me before we would go weed the garden. Um, hard work is its own reward. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I appreciate it more now. Most Americans agree with this sentiment that there is kind of in an inherent value in work, um, this kind of work ethic. 80% of Americans agree that hard work is its own reward. And this is something that's widely shared. 85% of current welfare recipients, those individuals receiving means-tested government assistance, agree, including 69% of liberals and 84% of conservatives. So when it comes to an endorsement of the ideal of work, there actually isn't that much disagreement about that. But there are some differences. We asked people if they would be willing 
if they were looking for a job, if they'd be willing to go to an, move to another state to find work. Now, most Americans say yes. 64% of majorities across income groups say yes. But we do find that lower-income Americans are less willing than higher-income Americans to be able to move to another state to find work. Now, it's unclear to what extent government policy might influence this, such as welfare programs making it difficult to move to one place or another, or to what extent this is just differences in preferences. What is more important in your life, planning for the future and giving up things now if necessary, or taking, it one day, taking each day one day at a time and living it to the fullest? So most Americans, 59%, say it's more important for them to plan for the future and if necessary, give up things today for future consumption. Um, we do see an interesting difference, though, by income groups. We find that people earning less than $20,000 a year instead um, tend to emphasize living each day to the fullest rather than planning for the future and giving up things now if necessary. However, once people start earning over $40,000 a year um, or more, we tend to find that people emphasize basically delayed gratification planning for the future. So there are some differences there that we thought were interesting. Do welfare recipients think differently about current welfare policies? So we thought we would take a look at what people actually think about the current state of government social welfare programs. And these, again, are means-tested government assistance programs. 54%, a majority of Americans, believe that most people who receive welfare benefits would rather earn their own living. 45% believe that welfare recipients would prefer to stay on welfare. Well, why don't we ask welfare recipients themselves? Well, here we see 65% say they would rather earn their own living and not receive welfare. Non-recipients, the third category, you can see they actually don't know. They're split about half and half. Not really sure um, if welfare recipients would prefer to earn their own living or stay on welfare. And there's a major ideological divide here where liberals believe that welfare recipients want to earn their own living. Conservatives believe that they would prefer to stay on welfare. Does welfare do more to help people get back up on their own feet? Or does it encourage dependency? 54% of Americans say that welfare benefits do more to help people stand on their own two feet than it does to encourage them to stay poor. Again, welfare recipients, 68% believes that these benefits help them to get back up on their feet rather than encourage poverty. Non-recipients are a little unsure. Again, split 50-50. They're not really sure. And then uh, there's a considerable ideological divide here where liberals think that it helps people get back up again and conservatives think that it keeps people poor. Um, one thing to keep in mind with these types of survey questions, you'll, you'll notice this if you study a lot of public opinion, is that people often ask to answer these questions according to whether they like or dislike social welfare programs. If they like them, they'll just always give you the positive answer. And if they dislike them, they'll give you the negative answer, kind of regardless of what they think is actually true. So this, I thought, was an interesting question to kind of get beyond that a little bit. What do you think a welfare programs actually do? What do they actually accomplish? 60% of Americans say that they simply provide for people's basic needs while they are poor. 39% believe that they help people climb out of poverty. And this is a fairly non-controversial view. Majorities of welfare recipients, pre previous recipients, non-recipients, and, and as well as different demographic groups tend to believe that really these welfare programs are just providing for basic needs rather than actually helping lift people up. 
it, I think this raises a question. Do we want more from our anti-poverty programs? Is this, is this actually what we want? Or do we want to actually try to lift people up? It's an important conversation to have. This might be why 77% of Americans, when asked to evaluate how effective the government has been over the past 10 to 15 years at fighting poverty, 77% say the government has been ineffective. This is not a particularly controversial observation. You've got nearly two-thirds of welfare recipients who feel like it's been ineffective, as well as 72% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans. I mean, how often do you get people in that much agreement on an issue? People agree what we're doing right now isn't that effective. What if we were to spend unlimited amounts of money to eliminate poverty? I mean, every social welfare program anyone's ever thought of, let's, what if we tried it and we implemented it? Would that be enough to eliminate poverty? So we asked Americans, and we found 72% that even if the government were willing to spend an unlimited amount of money, it doesn't know enough about how to actually solve the root causes of poverty to solve the problem. It doesn't know how to accomplish that. And you've got a majority, 58% of welfare recipients who feel this way, as well as majorities of Democrats and Republicans. We clearly have a problem with how people perceive government's ability to spend money to solve this problem. This might be why we found that 70% of Americans thought when asked to choose that it would be better to spend our resources on trying to eliminate the causes of poverty rather than to spend the money that we have on social welfare programs, basically, to give money to poor people so they can get back on their feet. So people would rather focus on trying to eliminate the root causes. Um, and this is fairly non-controversial. You've got majorities of welfare recipients and partisans agreeing that it would be better to focus government resources and time and money on trying to eliminate the causes. What will do more to help people get out of poverty? 70% of Americans say more economic growth would actually be the best way to reduce poverty. 29% felt like that more welfare spending would be the right way to go. So you're, we're seeing a consistent pattern here where people obviously want there to be a social safety net to some degree to be able to help people when they need it. But at the same time, there is a desire to try to reduce the need for it to begin with because people want to earn their own living. So for this reason, we decided to investigate how inclusive is the economy. The government can't control our individual decisions, nor should it. We wouldn't want it to. But what government can control are certain systems like housing policy, occupational licensing, education. These are things that the government explicitly has policy for. These are things that we can take a look at. And that's what's going to guide the next few slides that I'm going to show you. So we asked Americans about where they live. Could they rate the conditions for each of the following um, based on their own neighborhood? And this is the percentage of people who rate the conditions as bad in their neighborhood. Now, predictably, welfare recipients were more likely than non-recipients to say that finding affordable housing, finding good jobs, finding a decent education, and moving up financially uh, was not good <laughs> in their particular neighborhood. These are things that, in many ways, the government can directly affect and in some cases is making it worse. Like affordable housing, for instance, the government can directly affect how much housing can be built in a particular community. I mean, look at San Francisco. Look at the exorbitant housing prices. 
They are not meeting the demands of the people who live there because they are refusing to build enough housing. Occupational licensing. So Mike talked about this earlier. We asked people, has the lack of a credential or license ever prevented you or someone you know from doing a job you were capable of doing? Now we're talking about things like being a tour guide. Do you need an occupational license to be a tour guide, to arrange flowers, uh, to braid hair? And we see that 45% and 46% of, of, of welfare recipients and unemployed Americans, respectively, say that this has prevented them or someone they know from work. That's a pretty large share. Taking a look at occupational licensing would have to at least chip away a little bit <laughs> at these numbers here. So it's worth us taking a look at. Has a criminal record ever been a barrier for finding a job for you? Nearly a quarter of current welfare recipients and people who are unemployed say that a criminal record has prevented them from finding work. As you know, I mean, a lot of well-paying, good jobs won't hire you if you have a criminal conviction on your record. So how are you supposed to provide for yourself, provide for your family, for your children, if this kind of follows you everywhere, you everywhere you go. So for this reason, I think that this prompts us to ask some questions. What um, this prompts us to ask some questions about criminal justice reform, and that's going to be that could be a whole nother uh, discussion and lecture. But let's just take a look at one thing that we asked about on the survey. Um, a considerable percentage of the increase in mass incarceration over the past several decades has been due to drug offenses, drug felonies. What if we were to recategorize drug offenses from being felonies, which are very serious crimes and follow you for the rest of your life on your record, to um, civil offenses, meaning that they would be treated like minor traffic violations rather than crimes. So if you get caught speeding by the police, it doesn't follow you every time, you get a new, every time you're applying for a new job, for housing, et cetera. But if you have a drug conviction, on your record, that does follow you around. Well, what did we find? 55%, a majority of Americans favor um, recategorizing drug offenses from felonies to civil offenses. And I think that's a pretty interesting finding there. Um, what about housing? Have expensive housing costs ever prevented you from moving to a better location? And here you can see it's pretty highly correlated with income, but notice, once you get to about $60,000 a year, and that's about the median income, the median income in America is about $56,000 a year. So basically, once you're at the median, median or above, people feel like they're able to get to a decent neighborhood. Now think about, um, if you're a parent of a child in K through 12 education, you are assigned a school, and you have to go there. And if you live in a bad neighborhood that has a poor school with bad education, where do you go? How do you get out of that? Now, one way would be to move to a better location, but sometimes it's too expensive to do that. So we see here that 78% of welfare recipients feel that expensive housing costs have prevented them from moving to a better location. Now, to some extent, we can't always, we can't all live in the Hamptons, right? But we can, we should be able to expect that people should be able to live in a decent neighborhood with good schools that are safe and decent 
To some extent, government does have a role to play here, which is the government controls the supply of housing. The government can tell you whether you can build or not build more apartment buildings, condos, houses, townhomes, et cetera. So we asked Americans, what did they think? And I was actually very surprised by this finding. We, uh, we asked, would you favor or oppose building more houses, condos, and apartment buildings in your community? 59% favor this. And I was a little surprised because I thought it might be the, well, not in my backyard, but in other people's backyards, that would be fine. But no, 59% said that they would favor building more housing. We followed up with a second question after the first where we asked, would you favor or oppose building more housing? If it meant it would be easier for people to afford housing in your neighborhood, 71% favor. So again, by not everyone makes that connection. People don't really understand the laws of supply and demand, that when you increase the supply of housing, that lowers the cost of housing. But by making that explicit, people are on board with it. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, especially in really expensive cities like San Francisco and New York, where it's really difficult for just regular people working regular jobs and regular salaries to, to afford decent housing, why? Why is housing just becoming exorbitantly expensive? It's because we're not building more housing. Well, you might think, well, maybe that's because that's what the voters want. It doesn't seem like it. <laughs> it seems like most likely a small minority of special interest groups prevents cities from following the will of the American voters to build the housing that is necessary to meet the needs of people. Shifting to education. 85% of Americans who currently have children in K through 12 education send them to public school. According, so this is a Gallup survey, but according to our survey, we found that only 44% of Americans would prefer to send their kids to a public school. Instead, a majority, 55%, would prefer to send their children to private school. But that's often prohibitively expensive, especially since the property taxes that we pay either in mortgages or through higher costs of rent go towards that local school. So it's hard for people to pay that and on top of that pay for private school tuition. Is there anything that can be done for the people, the majority of people, that would prefer to have more options? Oops. Yes. Um, oh, I should also mention that this is broadly shared, this view of preferring to go to private school is broadly shared across most demographics. We see that majorities of welfare recipients, white, black, Latino Americans, all would prefer to send their kids to private schools. Um, Democrats were the only group that preferred uh, public school, but that was kind of unique. Okay. An opportunity to send children to private school using vouchers. 58% of Americans would support a proposal that would give families uh, the choice to, to enroll their children in private schools instead with government helping to pay the tuition. Um, and this is broadly favored. 67% of, of welfare recipients favor this, as well as 68% of Republicans. Democrats are split about half and half, um, probably because they're more supportive of sending their kids to public schools. But again, you've got more, de more Democrats supporting vouchers than those who just want to send their own kids to public school. And then what about a tax credit? This is a proposal that uh, Michael Tanner uh, discusses in his book. A proposal has been made to offer a tax credit for people and businesses who donate towards scholarships to help parents send their children to private school if they choose. This is also broadly popular, with 61% favoring this tax credit. Um, including the same share of welfare recipients, um, a majority of Democrats, and 69% of Republicans. 
So what I'm hoping to demonstrate with a lot of these reforms, and obviously there's much more research to be done, there's actually a lot of broad-based support for a lot of these different types of reform ideas to try to address the net or the, the root causes of poverty. And I think that while there still is plenty of more research to do, I think that these data indicate that Americans are very receptive to the, the idea of an anti-poverty agenda that focuses on inclusive economic growth, that wants to reduce the need for government means-tested financial assistance to begin with. Because people want to earn their own living. And one way to address this is to look at reforms to housing, to make it less expensive, reforming education, to allow people wider choices to be able to send their kids to the school with the best educational opportunities, to reform criminal justice so that people, when they make mistakes, aren't forever prevented from being able to provide for themselves and their family, as well as looking again at occupational licensing and seeing is, there, is this truly proportionate to the need uh, for the the reason of having the license. And putting this all together, the goal here is to enhance human flourishing, to allow people to reach their own potential, to go as far as their own talents and dreams and hard work can take them. That is the goal behind this, and we see that Americans are generally supportive of this kind of conversation moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. We have about 10 minutes left to open the floor up uh, to discussion. I suspect there will be lots of questions. We have a microphone somewhere in the room, uh, yeah, back there. So if you would please just wait uh, when you're called for the microphone so that our online viewers can hear the questions. And we'll go ahead and start um, second row up here, this young lady. Thank you. Um, so my question is really for Miss Emily. Um, so first off, as someone who does research, I absolutely loved your work. That was a fantastic presentation. Um, my question is, so you mentioned like having the government offer a tax credit to businesses and folks who would donate to scholarships. Do you think that that might somehow go the same way as health insurance, where private schools would just jack up the tuition if they felt they can depend on government assistance for that? So I, is this on? The, uh, there we go. So what I'm doing is the research on what people think about the proposals. As to whether or not the proposals are good ideas, the best person to answer that would be Mike Tanner. Sure. And I would actually defer, in fact, to Neil McCluskey, who does our work at Education for Cato, who's done a lot more depth uh, research on this. But the, but the general idea is the, if this is done correctly, and the individuals can roll over or keep a portion of the scholarship beyond what they spend on the tuition, uh, and use it for other educational purposes. That provides a downward pressure on the schools. So you have competition among a number of schools who are competing. If one of them, you know, consumes 100% of your tax credit of of your scholarship, and another consumes 90%, but you can use some of that money for textbooks and, and things of that nature, you're more, you know, that provides downward pressure on the on the uh, on the pricing. Okay, I will add one more thing too. I I think another thing is that it's not just a tax credit towards education that, um, were you talking about the second proposal? Yeah. For the scholarships? What that would do is it would allow private right. individuals, like I could do this, you could do this, or a business that right. says, I want to contribute to a, to a fund to allow you to send your child to a private school if you want. And that there would be some sort of like tax advantage to the person 
freely giving of their money, and then it goes into a little account. So you could imagine employers offering this as a benefit to their employees, saying, we want you to be able to have the choice about where you send your kids to school. And if you want to send them to a private school, we'll put this amount of money in this fund for you that the only you have access to that you can use for your children. So I think that was the idea behind this, as opposed to the more there's a kind of another category of policies where there's just a tax credit, and that's not what this is. Right. And as I say, it's a broad-based educational purposes, so it doesn't, you don't have to take 100 percent of it and put it towards tuition. You can use it for a variety Correct. of educational purposes yes. and supplies. Good question. Other questions? Yes. Also in the front, third row back, second row back. Thank you. Um, I'm sure you know Arizona just signed into law um, some legislation about yeah. occupational licensing and um, allowing that to be um, like transferred from other states and be, you know, eligible in Arizona for employment. Is that a good first step? Is that like is is that fine? I yeah, mean, what, what that's that's, that's that? definitely the, the sort of reciprocal licensing that Arizona is doing. Where if you're licensed to be a florist in Oklahoma, you can move to Arizona and keep and don't have to get a license again to do that sort of thing. Also, Florida's working on some legislation right now which would sort of force the licensing boards to decide whether or not a criminal conviction really should bar you from, uh, from ever having a license in, the, in that field and things like that. So there, there's a, there is a number of pieces moving forward in various states to do this. This is primarily going to be a state function to do this. Uh, but it's also something that you know should be looked at in terms of uh, you know when money's coming from federal government, what strings are going to be attached. I think I saw a hand. Yes, in the back of the room. Great. Uh, thank you for your time today. Um, I have a question regarding the research behind the liberals versus conservatives' point of view on um, the cause of poverty. So you mentioned that liberals tend to talk about the outside forces, and then conservatives tend to say it's individual characteristics. Have you ever done more granular research on looking at conservatives um, of people of color versus conservatives not people of color and then the same on the other side to see if there was any differences there? Yeah, we have that data and this will all be publicly available very soon when we publish it. Um, what I recall looking at those because there's a lot of data here. There's so much here. What I recall is that there actually were less differences across um, racial groups, gender, uh, racial, race, gender, those types of demographic group, it was really ideological where you really saw a clear difference. Um, if I recall directly, uh, correctly, it was more that it was a combination of individual and external factors when you look at white, African-American, Latino, men, women, et cetera. But when you look at the ideological groups, you really, it's very clear. It makes it easier to describe. <laughs> it's like external versus internal forces between the two. Any other questions? Uh, I'll ask. Uh, the last question, I suppose. Uh, is there anything that the federal government can do, and in, in particular Congress, um, to incentivize states to reform their occupational licensing laws uh, that you would find acceptable? Well, again, I think that these are state laws. I would not like to see a, a federal licensing bureau uh, out there determining what the florists should do in every state in the union. Uh, I think, don't think we should go there. Many of the reforms that I talk about in the book, uh, criminal justice is, is heavily state-oriented. Education is a state responsibility. Uh, 
the licensing laws and uh, occupational zoning are state responsibilities or locals responsibilities in many cases zoning laws the same way I would not like to see the federal government necessarily push back on this but a lot of what the federal government does is contingent or can be made contingent on states taking certain actions for example on zoning laws we know that uh, under Secretary Carson uh, HUD has been looking at the idea that uh, subsidies would only go to states that reform their zoning laws that the idea of chasing your tail where the state you know where a community can jack up the price of housing through uh, through unreasonable zoning and then say give us a bigger subsidy to help low-income people move into the into the unreasonably rented uh, priced uh, rents that sort of thing is, can be done and you can do some things at the occupational level as well I know the Obama administration published a report on occupational licensing that was terrific uh, and uh, and uh, they had some suggestions as well one thing I'll, I would also just add to kind of conclude is that I think that, and you definitely see this as public opinion research, is that there's a tendency for people to judge public policy when it comes to anti-poverty programs by the perceived intentions of the people talking about it rather than the efficacy or the outcomes of the policies themselves. So a lot of times what we see is that if you care about poverty as an issue and you want and you truly have empathy and compassion, then oftentimes people feel like they're supposed to say increase spending on the program and that for people who don't find that to be as a priority for them, then they might feel like they should say decrease spending for the program and then people in the middle just say no change. I think that we should move away from that frame. I don't think it's the bright frame that we should be thinking about. Um, what we're talking about now is a compassionate approach truly I think if you demonstrate that you truly care about the issue and that you are committed to trying to reduce poverty from kind of this moral, this kind of this deep moral motivation, then when you talk about growth policies right. and focusing on these other reforms, I think people will be more willing to listen and think, oh, you're not just, I don't know, someone that's not compassionate, doesn't care about this issue, and you just want to move on to the other to another subject. But I think that's the hard thing. And if we could just shift the frame away from increase, decrease spending on X program to um, can we focus on a pro an, an inclusive pro-growth agenda, and here are the pillars of that agenda, I think that that's going to be a more effective strategy going forward. Yeah, we've set up a sort of the loggerheads dichotomy here where social justice is on one side and limited governments on the other side, and they're not exclusive. You can, perform, you can pursue a limited government agenda that actually achieves social justice, and, and that's essentially what I try to do in, in this book. Thank you both very much. Let's uh, give them a round of applause.